Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we explore inbreeding depression across a nutritional stress gradient in Drosophila and search for the genetic components of fitness in escaped farm salmon and their wild counterparts in Norway. Firstly then, we know that inbreeding can be damaging to an organism's genetic health. But inbreeding depression can be made worse by environmental stresses environmental stresses that are potentially present all the time in wild and captive populations. In order to better understand the relationship between inbreeding and environmental stress, Mads Fristrup Sko and his team at Aarhus University in Denmark reared populations of Drosophila melanogaster at different levels of inbreeding and exposed them to a gradient of nutritional stress to see how they would fare. Here's Mads. Inbreeding in, in the strict sense is the mating between closely related individuals. And it results in rare and deleterious gene variants being fixed, so an increased homozygosity in a genome. And when these rare deleterious variants become homozygotes in individuals, then they are expressed and they have deleterious consequences for the fitness of the individual. Now, inbreeding comes up quite a lot on the Heredity podcast, but what we don't often hear about is how environmental challenges can exacerbate inbreeding depression. Yes, exactly. And what we just talked about now was the effects of inbreeding and how that results in inbreeding depression. And that's, I would call that, uh, so the genetic stress, which are already there in an inbred population. But we know that that natural populations are faced with environmental stress every day. Temperature fluctuates. There are like warm days, there are cold days, there are winters, and sometimes there's lack of food. And it's also the case for many domestic breeds which have like a very high productivity. So they are also stressed when they face uh, diseases and parasites. So that, this is all different types of environmental stressors that are out there. And, and yeah, in this study, we looked at how, how these environmental stressors may interact with the stress from, from inbreeding. And in general, the theory is that environmental stresses can make inbreeding depression worse. Yes, exactly. So there's a synergistic inbreeding environment interaction. That, that's, how, that, that's what we call it. And there have been previous studies into this interaction between the environment and inbreeding depression. Yes, there have been many studies, actually, but uh, most of them have only looked at sort of two different um, environments. So, say, a benign environment, which is, in most of the cases, the, the laboratory environment where the organism is doing is have plenty of food and everything is perfect. And then one environment where the scientists create some form of stress, and then they compare these two environments. There is no resolution of if it's a linear relationship. So how was it that you went about increasing the resolution of this interaction? So to create individuals which were inbred, we tried to mimic what's going on in the natural habitat. So we created multiple replicate populations where we only allowed 10 individuals from each population to 
breed and thereby to create the next generation. And then this took place for 25 consecutive generations, where only 10 individuals were allowed to breed. And that creates a quite inbred uh, population. And we also did this with an intermediate-sized population where we allowed 50 individuals to, to, to contribute to the next generation. And so tell me about the gradient then. Normally, when we rear the surfala, we, we transfer the eggs into a small plastic vial or tube and the eggs, they are placed on, on food source, which are composed of oatmeal, uh, yeast, and sugar, and there's some agar, which are mixed and, and cooked together. And so to try to stress them, we removed the oatmeal, we removed the sugar, and only gave them yeast. And then we also dissolved the yeast concentration, 10 different concentrations. So a decrease in, in available nutrition for the flies during the development from, from egg to adult. Right, so that was a sort of continuum of an environmental stress. Exactly. And so once you'd got the experiment started, what variables did you measure to assess the fitness of your Drosophila under these different regimes? So as we used the developmental food source as a stress, we decided to put exactly 20 eggs in each vial with food and then simply count how many flies emerged from these 20 eggs. So we, we call this measure the egg to adult viability. And what did you find then? What was the effect of the level of environmental stress on the inbreeding depression? So the inbreeding depression is the relative decrease in fitness of the inbred compared to the outbreak population. So all the data is standardized to how the outbreak populations was performing on these different media. What we saw was, as expected, this synergistic interaction between nutritional stress and the level of, of, of inbreeding. So at the control medium, there was a small, small significant effect of inbreeding, but it wasn't a lot. It was a small decrease in fitness. But as we diluted the medium, this inbreeding decretion increased a lot, especially for the very small populations. We found very large, uh, very large increase in the inbreeding depression, while for the intermediate size inbred populations, the increase was very late when we moved across the, this nutritional stress uh, continuum. So it was clear then that the more inbred populations suffered much worse under environmental stress. Exactly. Already at very small stress levels, we found interaction between stress and inbreeding for the highly inbred populations, the small populations, while we had to go up to as high as a stress level of uh, 0.25 before we, we saw an interaction of, of the stress with the intermediate size populations. So it's not just to be inbred or not inbred. We really show that it matters to what extent you are inbred. So a population size, in this case of 50, it makes a huge difference for natural or, or domestic populations faced with environmental stress. And in terms of that interaction, you mentioned in the paper that the, the norm of reaction was non-linear. First of all, what is a norm of reaction and, and what does it mean that it wasn't linear? So the norm of reaction in this case is how inbreeding depression changes across the nutritional stress continuum. So the null hypothesis when we humans design experiments is most of the cases that things are linear. So if we start with an inbreeding depression of, of say, 0.1, then as we increase the nutritional stress, we see a linear increase in inbreeding depression. Because we had a nutritional stress continuum and not just two different environments, we can actually see, well, is this change linear 
or or does or is there a curvature? And we found a curvature. So the for the highly inbred small population sizes, at very low stress levels, the embryonic depression increased dramatically and to a linear normal reaction in the beginning. But as we reached the very high stress levels, then there was a curvature and the increase in embryonic depression leveled off. Is that just because the animals died? No, it's not just because the animals died. I, one explanation is that all these deleterious alleles that have been fixed in the population during inbreeding, they are expressed when populations are faced with environmental stress. And at some point, they may all be expressed. And therefore, we see a lower increase at the higher uh, levels of stress in this case. This is also, it's one species and it's one type of environmental stress. There might be specific gene environment interactions in this case that are not general. You never know. Do you think these results are going to inform our ability to kind of conserve wild populations? Yes, I mean, that's, it's always the next step for, from the, the laboratory to go in and look at natural populations. Um, Have you got any plans to? I haven't got any plans, but uh, I know that there are studies out there doing this. Uh, it is difficult because there are so many environmental parameters that you are not in control of. But what, what I do think is that these results uh, will, will gain attention uh, for domestic breeders because it, it is very important to be aware of these environment and inbreeding interactions. It can have huge costs for them in terms of the output of their breeds. And so some good advice from your study for domestic breeders would be just to make sure that they keep their breeding populations large. Exactly. Exactly. And, and even small increases in, in the breeding population size may be very valuable. That was Mads Fristrup-Sko. So we ended there with some sage advice for commercial breeders to maintain the genetic health of their animal populations. Animals in captivity undergo genetic differences for other reasons too. Strong selection for the traits we view as desirable, as well as a relaxed selection for those we don't, can cause huge alterations to the genome. This often means that they lose the adaptive variation they need to survive outside of captivity back in the wild. And sometimes that's where they end up. The farmed Atlantic salmon in Norway escape in huge numbers, and whilst it's been shown that they largely perish, some do manage to breed, exposing the wild populations to their altered genomes, posing a potentially serious conservation problem. In order to better understand the genetic architecture of fitness in these fish families, Kevin Glover, research group leader at the Institute of Marine Research in Bergen, Norway, performed a linkage mapping approach to unravel the genetic architecture behind traits like growth and survival in wild, hybrid and farmed populations. Here's Kevin. I was finished at the University of Reading in, uh, well, 1996, that's a long time ago, and uh, I had an opportunity to work on cod genetics with a professor at the University of Bergen. I've always wanted to work with research and fish, so there I was exported from Britain to Norway, and uh, I've not gone back, basically. And what better place to study the genetics of fish than in Norway, where they have these huge salmon farms? Not just salmon farms. I mean, Norway has a very long coastline. There's very uh, large amount of wild fish stocks, like marine fish as cod and ling and pollock, etc. And they have, of course, a, a huge aquaculture industry. So uh, fish and fisheries are absolutely important to the Norwegian economy. So. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's a, it's a fantastic place to be for a researcher. Not least, Norway has got a lot of money, as most people are aware, so it's got very good facilities and opportunities for doing genetics on fish research in a way. I found it quite staggering to read in the paper that every year hundreds of thousands of these farm salmon escape into the wild. You've got to look at the production levels. I mean, Norway is producing nearly one and a half million tonnes of salmon per year. So although when we talk about the reported number of escapees of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, nearly up to a million in some years. There's still a low number relative to the numbers in the cages. But sure, when you put fish into cages, some of them will get onto the outside, but one way or the other, and that's something that you can never prevent in a way. So uh, it's just a kind of reality we have to deal with. And why do these feral fish kind of pose a problem for the ecosystem? So from when they were first taken into the farming environment in the very early 1970s, we started commercial breeding programs for this species. Now, they've been very successful. They've increased the growth rate potential farm salmon, um, maybe two, three times, depending on the studies you look at. They have tweaked the genetic, should we say, architecture of farm salmon in the direction of a domesticated organism. Now, these escape in sometimes very large numbers. And although most of these escapees disappear, perhaps they go onto the high seas uh, and starve, most of them just disappear in one way or the other. Some of them still manage to find their ways to the spawning grounds of these native populations. I guess if this was just a one-time event, you could say that, you know, natural selection and mother nature would kind of clean up that sort of issue as you would an oil spill on the beach. But the problem is that you've got farmed escapees entering a lot of these rivers every single year in a way. So you've got this constant load of, should we say, semi-domesticated and certainly not locally adapted farm salmon that are migrating into the wild populations and some gene flow occurring constantly into these native populations. Mm, so there's a kind of risk to both, really. The, 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 the domestic salmon themselves probably aren't going to you know, flourish in the wild, but also the locally adaptive native wild salmon, they run the risk of losing some of their regional genetic adaptation. Exactly. We know that the wild salmon populations are quite genetically distinct to each other. So when you've got this kind of semi-domesticated, non-locally adapted farm salmon coming in, they're ingressing. You've got some hybrids. Yes, the offspring of farm salmon do show reduced survival in the wild compared to the offspring of wild salmon. So we know that they're not so well adapted to the wild. But that's where our new study comes in, in a way, is trying to understand well, what's happening underneath this? And what sort of genetic mechanisms are responsible for this 
genetic difference in survival between palm hybrid and wild salmon in the natural environment. So, so uh, we'll get onto the genetics in a moment, but this current study sort of jumped on the back of a previous experiment, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So if we take a step backwards, we have a, a river in uh, the west of Norway where we have a trapping facility, so we could put eggs into the river, and when they grow and become smolts and migrate out towards the sea, we have a trapping facility to capture all of the smolts on the way out. So our earlier study looked at survival of farmed hybrid and wild salmon offspring, released in the river as eyed eggs and they grew and migrated and survived and uh, the whole life cycle with freshwater was completed and that study took about six years to complete and that provided the DNA samples for us because we know the mother and the father and we know how many eggs from each family were put into the river and we know exactly how many smolts survived and went out the river. We have data on survival at the family level and we have growth of fish at the family level and age of smoltification. So we kind of have an experimental system, but it's completely in the wild. So we have full control through DNA and pedigree analysis. And then we can look and see, compare the families, uh, how they're performing in this natural environment. First of all, what did you find out about the success of those different uh, families of fish? That was quite surprising actually to us initially because there's been two studies done previously to this one just looking at survival studies in the wild and they've shown that the offspring of farm salmon showed quite significantly lower survival than the hybrids and the wild fish. Um, in our system it was a bit more complicated than that. There was quite large variation in family survival. We had some families that almost had no survival in the rivers, so obviously natural selections had a good attack on those and we had some families that displayed perhaps seven or eight percent survival in the freshwater stage. The offspring of the farm fish did have a lower survival than the offspring of the hybrid and the wild families when we took egg size into consideration. This is important. Some monits we have a maternal effect in egg size. Bigger egg gives bigger juvenile. Bigger juvenile gets a good start to life even if it's not a genetic effect. It's just the size of the female and the egg in the way. When we corrected for egg size between the groups that was kind of masking effects, then we saw that it was clear additive genetic variation between the farm hybrid and wild salmon groups that would explain that the farm salmon had a, an overall uh, less survival than the wild fish in the natural habitat. But the results are a bit more complicated than previous studies in the way. We also had a lot more data, so we was able to look into these trends in a, in a deeper manner. And you also wanted to get at the underlying genetic architecture of the variation in fitness between these different fish families. Tell me why you used linkage mapping. What's special about linkage mapping is because you have the genotype of the mother and the father and you have the pedigree, it's kind of linked together in a way. Whereas association mapping, you wouldn't necessarily have that pedigree information and you just try to associate the variation of a SNP on its own against the phenotypic trait. But here, because we have the parental pedigree, we're able to link it together and produce the haplotypes because DNA, as you know, is inherited in blocks, not in single genes. And so the information from these blocks of genes together are kind of help accumulate together and give us a, a good information. Therefore, linkage mapping gives the ability to pinpoint areas of chromosomes that seem to be statistically associated with the phenotypic trait you're interested in, but it will not necessarily tell you what gene is specifically causing the variation. You just know um, this part of this chromosome arm seems to have this much percentage influence on the phenotypic trait in the environment and the pedigree material in which you did the experiment. 
And did you get any interesting uh, quantitative trait loci out of the linkage mapping them that would have explained some of that strong phenotypic variation between the, these different families? Yeah, absolutely did. We, we genotyped approximately 300 SNPs that are located evenly through all of the salmon's chromosomes in the genome. So we have genetic marker in every bit of every chromosome to try and pick up this information, so to speak. What we revealed, if we think about growth to start with, again, farm salmon have been selected for high growth in the farming environment. We know in the wild they don't outgrow the salmon quite to the degree they do in a domestic environment. They, after all, don't have access to this high-turbo food like they do in the farms. But they still grow better in the wild. And what we see for growth, measured either as length or in weight of the fish, is that both chromosome 2 and chromosome 11 are statistically associated with the strong phenotypic variation we saw in the system. Now, what's interesting about that is that there has been done some linkage mapping studies in Atlantic salmon and growth, especially um, in, in farmed populations in farms. And those two QTLs we've identified seem to overlap with previous studies, which seems to be, therefore, that, you know, the genomic areas that seem to be involved in growth in, in the farm system are also the same areas involved in the wild. So that was our first result. Um, but if we move over to the bit that's a bit more interesting, a bit more exciting, and perhaps a bit more novel, is that, of course, we've got a system where we can measure mortality. And this is what we really want to understand, the genomic architecture of adaption, adaptation sorry, and survival in the wild, especially when a, a maladapted gene complex such as farm salmon come into the uh, population. What we saw was that chromosome 2, again overlapping with this growth, uh, should we say, uh, QTL, seem to be strongly associated with survival in the environment we did the experiment. So we're starting to scratch at the surface of understanding what sort of genetic mechanisms and how adaptations work in, in a way. Does your curiosity into the genetics kind of end there now that you've found these QTLs? Or, is it, you know, it, what's the next step? Do you do any other kind of genetic analysis? Do you want to know what these genes do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing is, is that ultimately we would love to know what genes and sets of genes are working together to underpin adaptation of especially salmonids in the wild. What's been changed in farm salmon? There's been a huge domestication process going on that's still ongoing. It's been very successful. Understanding what sets of genes have been changed in domestication and how they have diverged from wild populations understanding how this all links together absolutely we're interested in those things and we have further ongoing projects we also have another set of three cohorts another 250,000 eggs were planted into our river system so we have another follow-up study with different genetic material um, kind of repeating the experiment again and that's nearly a like a seven-year experiment that fake so um, and not least of all the salmon genome is now sequenced and it should be released, hopefully, in the course of 2015. So the genomic tools for Atlantic salmon are among the best there are for non-model fish species in the world. So, you know, these things are coming together. The genomic tools are increasing to the point where we can start doing things that are almost at the level of human research. Not quite, of course, but certainly going in that direction. And at the same time, we have lots of this phenotypic and genetic variation in the world population. So understanding all of these things is absolutely something we're interested in from an academic and an applied point of view of course that was kevin glover from the university of bergen norway and that's it from us join us again next month for the next episode of the heredity podcast i'm jeff marsh thanks for listening 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 